Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hey, what's up? Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm good. I feel like the past two weeks have been relatively quite good. I'm, I'm quite happy. I've done a lot of the stuff that I've wanted to do since, since lockdown. The first week, went to the movies. Like I said last time, that was <laughs> b- very exciting. Saw Knit Ram, which was very, very good. And also, I think something that's been making me feel a lot better is that I finally got a haircut for the past however many months you are positively glowing i know i've just been my hair's been contained within a beanie because i haven't been yeah letting it see the light of day and been a little bit you're a little bit miserable a little bit miserable. i was a bit yeah and then i've just been shaving or not shaving in fact yeah the opposite yeah opposite. he had a like a beard and it was it was a thing yeah it <laughs> for was a while <laughs> yeah, you liked it you liked the beard i liked to it a point initially yeah. and then it started to get a bit out of control and i was like maybe we should do something about this, this. is a little experiment but now i've been you know you look I'm, like yourself again i look look like myself and instead of the long hair now i'm back to i don't know if you guys know but i have i have a bowl cut he's very proud which, of it and also the fantastic thing is that i don't know if i've mentioned but every time i go to the hairdressers because yes i get my bowl cut at a hairdresser uh <laughs> every time I just feel there's such a strange, unnerving tension between me and the hairdresser. Like, they're like, should I really be doing this for you? Yeah, I get the sense that by even asking for this, I'm insulting their craft. You know, <laughs> they come in, they're like, I went to fucking school for this. You know, I learned how to do this. I put in so much time and now you come in here and you disrespect me with this. And I'm just, I'm just trying to. And then I finally found a hairdresser. Who I feel like I just vibe with, you know, they, they get what I'm going for. So, you know, it's just been a good, good Everything's fortnight. looking up for Everything's you. Everything's looking up. I hope this you can say the same. Yeah, look, I don't even really remember most of the last fortnight. I think it's been a bit chaotic. It's been a bit hectic. The first week back, like, was really nice because I saw a lot of my friends. Some of which I literally hadn't seen in, like, five months because I already hadn't seen them for a while. And then lockdown hit. So it was just really nice. I saw, like, a friend that I hadn't seen, like, in fucking forever. And it was just... Really great. And then last week, I finally like visited Mitch's area where we have some friends, which I hadn't been able to do because I was in an LGA of concern. And it was just nice to like move more than 10 kilometers away from my house, which I just hadn't done in so long. So yeah, it was good. It was good from a socializing perspective. I feel like I've finally seen pretty much everybody that I've wanted to see. So I've like, I've that my checklist is done. But also, I just feel like it was a little bit hectic just because I've been trying to get on top of like a lot of life admin. I did my taxes. Wow. Which like is something that I was really putting off for a really long time because taxes really stress me out like a lot. And it's one of the main reasons I'm keen for a revolution so that I never have to deal with this again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, I'm convinced that like one day the ATO is going to show up at my door and arrest me because I like fucked up my taxes. And did you know something that I only discovered recently is that there is no like innocent until proven guilty with tax. 
the burden is on you to prove that you didn't commit tax fraud. Right. Did you know that? I didn't know that. No. Neither did I. And then we were talking about it at work and I was like, what the fuck? All of my like biggest fears are just being realized right now. I'm like convinced that something bad is going to happen to me and it's going to be because of my taxes. So dealing with that and actually doing my taxes was a big step for me and I'm proud of myself. But aside from taxes, I feel like it's kind of been productive. My apartment is like almost 100% fully done. My study that we record in, my little office has a rug now, which it didn't have two weeks ago. And I have like pictures on my walls. Like it's almost done. I'm almost ready for a housewarming, which has been really exciting. So I feel like it's been a really productive two weeks. And there was one other exciting thing, right? Yes. Oh, yes. It was also our three-year anniversary last week. Can you believe that? Three years. I know. Where does time go? Technically longer, if you consider how long we've actually known each other. That's true. Um, But yeah, it was also our three-year anniversary last week, which honestly was so lucky that it coincided on a week that we weren't doing the podcast. Otherwise, y'all would have lost an episode. Oh, no. But we're here, so no worries. Anyway, let's get into some follow-up for this week because there is a lot. (laughs) Before we get into our very hefty follow-up, I'm going to do a really short, quick one on The Bachelorette because, I mean, you guys know that I love hate. The Bachelor series. I talk constant shit about it all the time and how much I hate belly TV and how racist it is. But I still watch it and get like kind of invested in it. So, you know, I play myself. But I watched The Bachelorette premiere last Wednesday uh, for Brooke Blurton and it was so fucking good. Like, I actually think, I don't think reality TV can get much better than that. Like, I think that's just as good as reality TV can get. Like, within the confines of reality TV, it was really fucking good. It's the first time ever that The Bachelor has had not only an acknowledgement of country, but a welcome to country as well. So like on the red carpet, Book Blood and Who is First Nations, they had like the local elders from like that. It's also important that it was from that specific area because Brooke is from, I think she's from Western Australia. I think she's from Perth. And it was recorded in Sydney. And I was kind of worried that like Channel 10 would fuck it up and like have the wrong welcome to country or like get it wrong because like come on we don't really expect much from these people but like apparently they consulted a lot of people on this and like were really inclusive and like it seems like they really did something right for once which is kind of impressive to be honest and I feel like we should acknowledge it when it's done right what was the acknowledgement of country like it was was it someone on like saying it or was it like a banner before? Okay, so before the premiere started, so it's like a black screen and then it says like, you know, kind of like how we have an acknowledgement of country in the beginning of our podcast where it's yeah. like we acknowledge that this is, you know, so-and-so's traditional land, etc. And I think it was Osha reading it, but it's like it's written on a black screen. Right, and so it was I voiced. Think, yeah. yeah. I, oh, I'm I pretty what, sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was. I remember when we had to, to watch The Masked Singer <laughs> and they would have the acknowledgement of country like uh, in white text, text on and a then black like screen. fucking... I, and then Pavlova it would, singing. It would yeah, acknowledge my country and then immediately cut to just the most sort of chaotic hyper all over the place. Like, it almost seems like the acknowledgement of country was a threat. You're like, <laughs> we're doing this on your land. Like, <laughs> it was a bit fucked. It was a bit, it was very menacing. It yeah, had extremely it was, menacing energy. This is all happening on unceded land. Yeah. Like, yeah you better okay. be worried. Yeah, it was fucked. It was very, yeah, stressful. But no, no, no. The one on The Bachelorette was not menacing energy. It was actually really emotional. Oh, that's fantastic. Like I teared up a little bit, to be honest, because it just felt kind of momentous. And I do acknowledge that that was significantly because of the editing and the swelling music and 
Brooke is crying, watching the Welcome to Country. And it's just such a moment. It just felt, it felt historic. It felt big. And I was like watching it and I was crying. And a part of me was like, I know this is emotional because they've edited it in a way to elicit this emotional response from me. But I also don't think that necessarily means it's not emotional because it is. I just think, you know, it's like maybe this is the start of like a new practice that we should have been doing a very long time ago. Like it's incredibly overdue. Like the fact that they weren't already doing acknowledgements of country is kind of wild. I feel like everybody should be doing that all the time. But it's happening. And like, I'm just glad that like, even if it took this long, I'm glad that it's happening. And Brooke seems to really have created some change because I know that when they like tried to get her to be the bachelorette, like she was pretty much just like, I'm not doing it unless X, Y, Z criteria are fulfilled. And that's really great, I think. My only criticism is that like, it seems to reinforce a lot of binary notions of gender, which I'm not loving. But it's always done that. Right. Yeah, no, nothing, it's nothing new. But it's I just think, a sort of necessity of the format. Well, it just, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing, though. <laughs> uh-huh. um, see what I did there? No, here's the thing, though. We obviously talked about from quite early on that gender is not going to be something that stops Brooke from finding her loved one. And she, like, says in, like, the promos and stuff, it's not about gender, it's about who the person is. And I thought, like, the way that was framed could have really made it quite amazing if they had people who were non-binary, right? Like, people who don't identify as either a woman or a man would have been really interesting because she keeps talking about how gender is irrelevant. So the show had an opportunity there. And instead, it it would be a different story if they just didn't cast anyone who isn't, like, a cis person. But they also seem to, like, actively be reinforcing the notion of binary cisgender because, like, they constantly say males and females and it just gives me the ick. Not even men and women, it's males and females, which just, like, immediately kind of has implications of sex over gender. Like, it just seems a bit... Ick. And I don't think that people are trying to actively, like, no. erase non-binary identities, but it is just, like, kind of ick. They keep saying males and females, males and females, female and male, girls and boys, males and females. And I'm like, can you just say people or, like... I don't know. This is like something that can definitely still be worked on and improved. So the premiere wasn't perfect, obviously, but it was really good, I think. And I am actually extremely invested in this season. I am in love with Brooke. There you go. That's fantastic. Anyway, on to our second follow-up, which is literally going to be like half this episode, to be honest, but I think it's important, is our follow-up on Ovira. So last episode, two weeks ago, was about corporate and brand activism And specifically, as our case study, we talked about Ovira, a quote-unquote women's health brand, and the billboards that they put up outside of Knox Grammar in response to the assault of a woman by a young man. We kind of discussed, like, if brand and corporate activism can ever really be real activism, if it can ever really be sincere, if it's, you know, inherently disingenuous, and if that even really matters. And we kind of got into some pretty interesting conversations around like the impact of brand activism and how it's kind of almost always self-serving. Like the next day (laughs) after our episode went live, shit hit the fan for Ovira. 
So some of you may know Dorang Chawla on Instagram. He is an advocate for women suffering from domestic violence. He lost his sister to murder a few years ago, and that's kind of really shaped who he is today. And he talks a lot about men's violence and men's role in violence and how this is a men's issue and that men need to pull up other men to stop them from like killing women. He's very well known, I would say, in like this particular community. So he posted a series of posts on Instagram saying that Ovira approached him to endorse the campaign before it went live, the campaign that we talked about, which he denied because he wasn't quite on board with what they were doing. I don't think he fully gave a reason why, but he just kind of probably felt the same equated, to be honest. So he said no. And then he found out that his face, like his likeness had been used in the campaign anyway. Uh, which obviously really upset him because he didn't consent to his image being used for this campaign, which he like actively rejected and Ovira used his image anyway. So he like emailed them and was kind of just like, hey, like I didn't say yes to this. This is not okay. And they were immediately like extremely apologetic and they took the image down and they said it was a mistake. But he kind of just was like, this is weird. Like I already had an ick. This is me obviously paraphrasing, not his exact words, <laughs> but he had it. He was, Quotes, I had an ick. <laughs> <laughs> so he obviously had, like, he had an issue with it, which I completely understand and agree with. And then he kind of opened up a broader conversation on consent and how it's very interesting that a brand that is talking about the violence that women experience and that is discussing the way women are touched etc without their consent would then like not really practice that consent in their own brand dealings and i think his posts were quite level and i think they were like yeah this is a problem and it's interesting and we should be critical of this issue and we should be critical of brands that do shit like this it's dodgy which then sparked some more conversation because nina funnel who i do believe we actually mentioned last time we talked about Ovira, but um nina funnel an investigative journalist well known for uh helping survivors of sexual assault tell their stories she was also really critical of vera and she previously asked him on twitter like just kind of as the campaign went live if they had consent from the victims to do what they were doing and they said yes they did as it turns out apparently they didn't and they said they had consent and then they went and retroactively got consent which as we all know is not really how consent works and tarang has like the email receipts because apparently ovira like admitted to him that they didn't have the consent of the male victim because it wasn't just a woman that was punched that night in north sydney it was her male companion as well and apparently they didn't have his contact and they asked Tarang like do you have his contact and he was like why the <laughs> fuck would i have his contact <laughs> it was just like obviously super fucking weird yeah. and disorganized and clearly they hadn't really thought that through and then they were kind of scrambling to get that all sorted and done before the campaign went live. So it just seems like a bit of a shit show, which if you guys want to read about that more in depth, you guys can head to his Instagram page. It's at Tarang Chawla. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it. But the point is, it looks like they were doing some dodgy shit and Tarang then called them out on Instagram. And the reason we're bringing that up is because of the absolute fucking shit storm that ensued after he did that. So after he did that, there are a few other people of color being quite critical of Ovira, but Ovira's fans absolutely just like went to town. Tarang was like inundated with accusations of being a bully 
and being cruel and aggressive. And all these white women in the comments were like, how are you attacking, you know, this woman like this? She's just trying to create legitimate change. And here you are tearing this woman down. And like, despite being the, he's the victim in this scenario, like a brand used his likeness without his permission. And yes, I know they apologized. But the point is he was like the victim in this scenario. And he talked about it on his Instagram page, which I think is completely acceptable and fine. And if anything, good, because we should be holding brands accountable. And he's just getting absolutely fucking trashed and like demonized, like actively demonized for like having the audacity to talk about something that happened to him. To me, the whole thing felt like incredibly racist, to be honest, because it's not lost upon me that Tarang Chawla is Indian. He's a brown man. And almost all of the people attacking him for this issue are white women. And there is just like really gross optics around white women, like accusing men of color and particularly South Asian men and often black men and Arab men of being like aggressive or of, you know, kind of exercising some form of violence. Like they were implying that him talking about Ovira was an act of violence against women, which is just fucking absurd considering the situation and his context and who he is. But also like it's not violence to call out a brand And it really interests me how much people conflated Ovira as a brand and like an individual white woman. Like this was personal for white women who see this brand as another white woman. And I find that very interesting. I mean, also like really fucked up because that would have been really hard on Tarang as well. And there was another point that I wanted to bring up before we kind of get into the politics of this. And that was the amount of people saying, well, does he have consent from all the people that he has ever discussed on his Instagram? As if like it's the same thing for an individual discussing a news story and a brand like capitalizing off it and making money off it in a campaign. Like that is not the same thing. And I want to put that to bed like immediately because it actually really frustrated me. Individual people discussing a news story do not need consent to discuss that news story unless it has like personal details that haven't been reported on. It'd be a different story if he then like outed these women's like personal details that their family entrusted him with that he didn't have the consent to or whatever. But when a story is in the public domain, the news has reported on it and you are talking about the story that has already been reported. It is already in the public sphere. As an individual, you don't need consent to talk about it. Like Mitch and I do not need to DM every single person involved in every single news story we've ever discussed in the podcast because we're two individuals having a conversation. We're not a brand. We're not a corporation. And we're not making a profit from these people. We're discussing a story in like a political context. It's quite different. And Tarang like talking about women that have been victims of like rape or domestic violence and being like, this needs to stop. This is fucked up. Yet another thing has happened. It's not the same as Ovira launching a branded campaign with those stories. Tarang is not a brand. He's not an influencer, which I've seen other people accuse him of being as well. You need to have sponsorships and like products and like brands to be an influencer. This is a guy that like talks about stuff on his Instagram. I have never ever seen a sponsored post on there. I know for a fact that he doesn't make money off his Instagram And I mean, most of the quotes that he would be giving to the media as well are for free. You know, most people don't get paid for their quotes and interviews. Like I've been interviewed by heaps of people for news stories. They don't pay you. They slide into your DMs and they're like, hey, I'm writing the story. Do you have a comment? And you're like, yeah, here, here's this. That's how it works. Like 
unless you're like doing a fucking current affair or something, you're not paying people for their interview. That's not how it works. Um, so it's really quite frustrating for me as well to see Tarang get all this hate as somebody who is an advocate, but also as someone who is like an individual and a South Asian man who was like literally just discussing being fucked over by a company and everybody came for him and cared more about our brand than they did about him. It was just racist white feminism and we have to call it out for that because it was quite frankly disgusting. After all this, Avira did give an apology on Instagram, but I personally felt that it didn't really acknowledge a lot of the issues that people were actually calling them out for. Like it was like a, yes, we made a mistake. We're really learning. And I believe that the CEO or whoever wrote it, I believe she like genuinely is concerned and is genuinely worried and is like, damn, we fucked up. How do we fix this? But it was weirdly lacking of any of the racial context. Like people, you know, did ask about how this feels quite white feminist and like, are you supporting any like organizations or charities that focus on like culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, like domestic violence and gendered violence is statistically higher in certain groups. Like, uh, what are you doing about that? And there was just kind of no response or acknowledgement. It was just a bit ick. And all of that happened like literally in like two days after our podcast went live, which is a bit crazy. I also think in terms of the apology that I think it's important to let people grow. You know, if people apologize and it's sincere, I think that's fine. I think we should encourage that. Uh, I don't think brands deserve our time. Like they don't deserve uh, the chance to grow or the benefit of the doubt ever. The fact that they're selling you something immediately nullifies anything I think that they really have to say. Well, it's just pretty hard for a brand to have a sincere apology when they need you to believe their apologies so they can sell you things. We have to remember that this isn't a person. This is a brand. They are selling you things. And the reason they need to apologize and do this stuff is in order to keep their business afloat. And even if the person writing the apology, which was our CEO, who I believe was genuinely distressed by this and like was probably very sorry. I believe it. But she's not just sorry because she feels bad. She's sorry because she needs to save her business. Aside from the obvious kind of racism that came out of this and just the way that white feminists weaponized white femininity and attacked a person of color in the textbook way that I feel like we talk about every fucking episode. Aside from that and seeing history repeat itself yet again, the other really interesting part of what happened in the aftermath of our episode the way that people who liked Avira's products or had found them helpful or effective assumed that that meant the company is inherently good and ethical and incapable of doing any wrong. Something that I found really interesting, not just in the comments on Tarang's Instagram, but also in my DMs when I was putting up po- like polls and things on Instagram and asking people like, what do you think of Avira? Like, what are your experiences with this brand? I found it really interesting that people who had used a product that worked or that had helped them in their life were like, oh, like, they're so good. You know, I feel like everyone's being really unfair to them. Like, their products have helped me so much. And I'm just like, why are we correlating and conflating the product with, like, this brand being, therefore, a person incapable of moral grayness? Like, you can buy a product from a brand that is effective and helps you and also recognize that that brand has done something wrong or problematic or isn't necessarily as sincere as you thought it was. And I just find it really interesting the way that people have humanized Ovira. And this is not specific to Ovira. This is like 
all companies and brands, but the way that people have humanized Avira as a person that helped them and now they feel loyalty and they feel like they must defend Avira against these defamatory claims because the products that they bought from Avira was helpful to them. Brands are a structure of many things. They are not like a person. And it's important to recognize that because it was honestly a little alarming. And also, I mean, I had quite a few people who suffer from endometriosis and like people involved in endometriosis community groups that were in my DMs telling me that there's quite a lot of negative sentiment towards Ovira in endometriosis groups because of the way that Ovira markets their product is a cure-all for endometriosis and there is no cure for endo. There are treatments that can make it easier to deal with and easier to live with, but you can't just end your endo. And I've had a few people in my DMs saying that they are distrustful of Avira because they sell a TENS machine for a very marked up price. And that's something you can get quite a bit cheaper from like Chemist Warehouse. Yeah, that's something I found Really, really interesting because, I mean, I don't really know anything about TENS machines. But, yeah, we had a lot of listeners and, and people we know say that TENS machines can be you know acquired quite cheaply. And it seems that Ovira is just selling a very trendy, overpriced, potentially. I, I don't know if there are differences, but it doesn't seem so from what people are telling me uh, between the two products. So, you can get like a TENS machine for 30 bucks, whereas Ovira is selling theirs for $190. Yeah, like we kind of just went on a Google shopping scroll to investigate this these TENS machine allegations. And it seems you can buy them from anywhere between $15 to $150. I didn't see a single thing go above $150, which seemed to be the highest price for TENS machines. And then Ovira's is $190, which is interesting because I already thought $150 was like kind of expensive. And then this is like nearly 50 bucks more than that. Yeah, and as all these new things have been coming up about Ovira, I've been thinking a lot about our podcast episode from last week. And there was one thing which I said there, which I I stand by, but I've just been thinking about it more and more. And I think it sort of all made sense to me, which was one thing I had a problem with on last week's episode about the, the campaign they did, the billboards, is the cohesion in aesthetics between like their brand look and the look of the billboards, how they use the same typeface, the same colors. And even in the first round of billboards, there was the logo beneath. And I was thinking, like, I knew that just made me uncomfortable because firstly, it was like sanitizing protests, essentially. Uh, But there was something that I couldn't quite articulate, but I knew that was was just wrong. Giving you the ick. It was giving me the ick, yes. But then just looking at it all after this unfolded, it just made sense. Like, how can they sell a $189 TENS machine? Well, it's because there's a cohesion between the brand activism they do and the look of the product and the look of their website. It's because you're buying the activism. You're connecting yourself to like a culture. That's how they sell it. Oh, I'm not just buying a TENS machine. I'm buying, you know, something from a brand that, that really gets me. That's really doing good. You know, it's a woman's startup. They're doing activism. You know, that's where the, the difference in price comes. It's the symbolic benefits that surround the products. So it's intentional. Like, that's why there has to be a coherence and a cohesion uh, and a consistency between the look of the brand and the look of the product and the look of the activism because you're buying the activism. Because the thing is, you could buy a TENS machine from anywhere, but by buying a various one, you're not just buying a TENS machine, you're buying into this lifestyle and you're paying to be involved in that community because now you get to be part of the Avira community and you get to tag them and they can like like and comment on your post and maybe share it. And then you can connect with other people through like the 
particular hashtags or product, I don't know, like how you can communicate with other people using the same product. And it's like, that's what you're paying for. It's not just a TENS machine because you could get that anywhere. The reason you would get one from Ovira is because of all the, all the benefits that come with being involved with this brand. One interesting thing and maybe annoying thing about these Ovira updates and the way it's unfolded is that it sort of changed the context of last week's episode. In last week's episode, we were constantly like, we're sure that this is not disingenuous. We believe this is sincere. We think they're doing everything right, but it's still problematic nonetheless. But it seems now it's just problematic (laughs) all around. Yeah. Some of our disclaimers were maybe a bit unnecessary because, I mean, I still do think that they were sincerely trying to do something like good yeah but we were kind of giving them a bit more benefit of doubt i think than we needed to in terms of like the way they did it because we were like yeah what they did is fine it seems they did everything right but just inherently this stuff is gonna be like fucked under capitalism but now it looks like they did cut corners and they were a little bit dishonest about things like consent with tarang and it, it actually was just a bit of a mess which does change some of the things we would have said last week about things like being really sincere all the time because clearly not (laughs) exactly but the point i just want to reinforce is that everything i said you know in last week's episode still stands that even if it wasn't a mess i still have a massive problem with it the fact that it is a mess if anything uh removes the strength of that argument but maybe we need to do another episode with a (laughs) with a brand activism that isn't a mess just to reinforce that even when it's done right we still have issues yeah if if you pretend that the Ovira thing was done right, yeah. our arguments hold up. There you go. <laughs> okay, I think that's probably enough on the Ovira follow-up. We have a lot to say, but also... We do have an episode today. We do have an episode to get to. <laughs> but anyway, let's get into the topic for today, which is like tangentially related, actually. So today we are going to be talking about the concept of journalism. Not journalism, journalism with a c-h-u-r-n journalism which was kind of sparked by the ovira conversation when we discussed the way they disseminated the news of their billboards through press releases and last week we talked a bit about kind of the way that was discussed in the news and how it became news and i think we alluded to a few things regarding journalism and the way that pr and journalists have like quite a strong relationship and how it's necessary. But I think we could actually have quite a deeper, more interesting conversation on that little tidbit. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about what journalism is. And then I think I'll talk a little bit about my experiences working in like the journalism industry and working in an industry that survives on journalism in a world that needs journalism. And then we'll talk about maybe like why journalism is quite dangerous at times and problematic and not really great, not really a good practice. But I think then at the end, we'll kind of reiterate that just because it's bad doesn't mean the workers who do it are bad. Like this is not a worker issue. This is an industry issue. A structural issue. A structural issue. A capitalism issue. issue. Oh, I've spoiled it. <laughs> Actually, oh, I no. just spoiled every single Here's the Thing though episode. <laughs> it all comes down to capitalism, baby. Let's get into it. Okay, so what is journalism, right? I wish I could say that I made up that pun because it's fucking great. But it's it, so good. It's so good, but it wasn't me, unfortunately. So the term journalism... It's been credited to a BBC journalist called Wasim Zakir, who coined the term in 2008. And it was essentially about the fact that a lot of stories in the press are not original. And there's this real decline of like original investigative journalism. 
So the definition of journalism in the Oxford Languages Dictionary is journalism that is based on the repetition or reuse of material obtained from sources such as press releases or syndicated news reports rather than original research. So it's this idea of articles and stories being born from pre-prepped information sent through PR packages or like the lifting of stories from other publications and just kind of republishing what they've said in your own words rather than getting to the heart of the story or like kind of primary sources, you know. This is obviously relevant to some of the things we've talked about previously because of our discussion about Ovira's billboards not being like found by journalists. It wasn't something that a journalist saw and was like, that's fucking cool. Like, let's report on that because this deserves to be reported on. Ovira sent in a press release, which journalists saw and then like published essentially. You know, it was just this information wasn't kind of found organically. It was given. And that's something that happens a lot of the time with a lot of the articles that you read. Like it's not often that a journalist has like found that. That does obviously happen. Investigative journalism is a thing that exists. But a lot of everyday like staff writers, especially ones kind of like me that are in more of the pop culture-y, entertainment-y kind of industry, like a lot of that stuff can come from like other publications or from press releases. And I guess the reason we're talking about it is because we've noticed a problem of just regurgitating press releases kind of with no questioning, especially when like we probably should be questioning press releases that come from brands. Like these people have an agenda that we should be a bit interrogative of and non-critical journalism which just reports kind of what happened without really the how, why, who, where is this information coming from? Should I be critical of this particular statistic that they have given me clearly because it aids their argument? Like there isn't really that extra mile of work. Or does this story even need to be told? Yeah. Does the story need to be told? Do I care? Look, I will say I do a little bit of that just because I get like fucking thousands of emails a day. And I'm not kidding when I say thousands a day from like, all kinds of random... I wrote one article about an NFT meme. I wrote one article (laughs) about the Doge Dog NFT selling for a fuck ton of money like months ago. And I still get at least one email a day from someone who's into Bitcoin asking me to cover some Bitcoin story. That I would love to read I those. don't know what Bitcoin is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, what is a Bitcoin? I don't understand. Oh, man. All these... Oh, I get so many cryptocurrency emails of like, oh, press releases about it. And I'm just like, I don't fucking... This is like reading a different language. Like, I don't know what is going on. I'm sorry that you think I understand NFTs. I don't. You need to re-listen <laughs> to our NFT episode. <laughs> the only thing I know about NFTs is the stuff we talked about in that episode. Right. I don't understand how we like spend so much electricity generating bitcoins it doesn't make sense because it's not real they exist in the cloud like this is a whole other conversation but the point is (laughs) the point is i get a lot of emails every day from a lot of pr companies and we do choose i guess sometimes what to publish from those like you skim through it dictators of knowledge (laughs) yeah clearly we're the gatekeepers of knowledge but yeah i mean the point that i'm trying to make in this little intro of journalism is that there are problems to it And we should be critical of it. But also, it's not like we're just problematically doing it. So let's maybe get into more clearly, because I mean, I just kind of gave you a slight recap of my experiences in journalism. But let me go a little bit more in depth just to like contextualize that a bit and to give you some 
little insider knowledge of what it's like to work in journalism. I am obviously quite new to journalism. I do want to say that I've only been working in journalism for two, maybe close to three years now, two and a half, three years. But I've always worked kind of in the more youthy, entertainment-y kind of section of journalism. So I don't have experience with things like ABC News, which I imagine is a little bit less interested in journalism. Like that shit is probably a lot more investigative and fact-checked. I'd hope so. That, yeah, would be some like more quote-unquote real journalism yeah and i think it's important to foreground that journalism doesn't define the whole journalist landscape yeah but a large majority of it because most journalists most people who are writing for a living aren't doing you know first-hand investigative research 24 the abc or the new york times yeah and not even just that but just doing that all the time like every article you write is like an investigative piece it's not gonna happen because then you'd only write one article a bloody month like that's not how it works Especially if you work in a nine to five, you are generally writing a set amount of articles every day. Like you're here, you're covering the news that breaks that day because we live in a 24 hour news cycle. That's kind of my experiences in journalism is that I've like, I work full time now, but I didn't used to work full time. I used to work part time two or three days a week. And my job back then was to just, I log in and then my job is to be here available all day and cover whatever's happening. And I was typically at that point doing around three articles a day, which obviously there are a lot more than three articles happening in a day, but then I have to take into account who my target audience is, what my interests are, what we cover as a brand, who our brand sponsors are, because like I probably can't cover that story that just paints the sponsor in a bad light and they would drop us if I covered it and then my boss wouldn't be able to pay me. So I probably can't cover that one. And, you know, like there were all these things we had to think about, right? Especially to do with audience as well. And just resourcing, you know, if there's only like two of you on, which in the past I have definitely worked in situations where there are only two of us on all day covering the news. There's only so much you can cover and you're going to choose the stuff that you reckon will pop off even if there's a story that's more important but won't get clicks. And honestly, that happens a lot. Like something that frustrates me to no end is like, I'll write a Kylie Jenner piece and it'll pop the fuck off. People want to know what is going on between Kourtney Kardashian and whoever her ex is. And then I write a story about like the government abandoning refugees in Papua New Guinea, which by the way, they are doing because I wrote about it a few weeks ago. And like people are far less interested in that, which is frustrating as well, because then like you are put in a position where you're like, do I write the story that's important or do I write the story that I know will help us hit our monthly milestone or whatever? Working in journalism is a complicated moral dilemma 24-7 fucking all the time. Right, all the time you have to make a decision. And sometimes the worst part is not making a decision. Like sometimes you log in and stories are assigned to you. Maybe you log in on a Tuesday, because I used to work Tuesdays and Thursdays, and a story broke on Monday night. And then your boss is like, hey, this was a pretty big story that broke last night. Can you pop on today and, co- and you know cover it? Which you know we used to do back in the day when I worked two days a week. And it's just like, I don't care about this story. I don't really know how important this story is. I don't actually want to write this story. And I actually don't know if it even is saying anything particularly important. But my boss told me to cover it and I like having a job. So I am going to cover it. And it's a very icky situation to be in because at the end of the day, like I am probably at the lowest rung of the hierarchy being a like fairly new person to the industry, right? Like I am not the boss of anybody. I'm only the employee of people. I don't have anybody under me. I report back to bosses all the time. And that means that like I don't have as much control over the industry 
the publication I work for, the news cycle, etc. as like people seem to think that you do. Like people seem to really think that you have control and I don't. I try and write things that I want to write for sure. And a lot of the time I do. I think I've written some pretty good stories in the past of things that I really care about, but that isn't a sustainable thing to do 24-7. And like, yeah, sometimes I just have to write shit. And honestly, sometimes I use press releases. Exactly, because when a press release comes and it has an event that you can write about, it has quotes that you can just immediately copy and paste in and an image, it's a story that just exists for the taking. It writes itself. Exactly. And, and, they, and they frame it in such a way, they give it to you as a story that is pre-written because they want you to talk about it. The easier they make it for you, the more likely that whatever they want to sell is going to be spread around. It's quite interesting, actually, as somebody who receives like PR packages in emails and stuff of like, here's the image, here's the story. PR people, because this is like a real job that a real person is writing. Like, it's not like Macca's, the company, sent me an email. It's like Annie from sales. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a real person. And she, her email will probably be like, hey, Saliha, I saw that in the past you've covered this stuff with this company and it seems that you care about this issue and I thought this thing would be really impo- like interesting to you because here's XYZ statistic and this particular story, you know, it's about to break and it's going to shed light onto this issue. And I think, I think that's like totally your jam. So here's like some photos and some quotes and blah, 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 blah. And let me know if you cover this and I'll share it around. Like, that's how a lot of PR emails come to you. It's not like Macca's, the company, the big M is like, cover this, you pleb. Like it's, yeah, exactly. It's like a nice lady from sales that like knows who I am, apparently, and like has a story that she would like me to cover. And that's a pretty good offer, too, because they're offering to give you a story that is prepackaged and potentially before other people are going to have access to the story. Yeah. Do you want to be the first person to report on this or do you want to see another publication exactly come out with this and then you're you know going to be second well ovira actually gave me exclusive access initially Mm. and then i didn't reply to them and then it went everywhere else the next day but like initially that was like embargoed information it was like confidential information because they were giving us first access to that story which is incredibly valuable in the news space because most stories are lifted from other publications. It's not often that we have original reporting. Like most of the time, ABC breaks news on Chris Porter. Then Channel 7 and News break it off ABC. Then News.com.au breaks it off them. Then maybe I break it off. You know what I mean? Like it's all of us kind of, it's like one person breaks a story and then it gets goes viral and gets covered everywhere. But there's typically only one source. And, like, and if that source gets some things wrong those mistakes will also just be replicated down the chain. Yeah. And it's like, it's a really interesting space to be in because it's scary to be the first one to break a story because you don't want to fuck it up. You don't want to get called out and you don't want to get sued. That's also something that you have to think about. If the story is like something that is defamatory, you're like, or especially if you work for a smaller publication or especially if you're a new journal, you're like, maybe I'll wait for ABC to get this one. (laughs) Like, say I heard tea about like, a minister in parliament being a rapist and somebody dropped it in my DMs, I honestly would be worried because I'd be like, I don't know if I have the capacity to protect myself from being sued here. And I, if I do get sued, I don't have the money to go to court. So maybe I'll let the big dogs take this one. Like there are times where you let go of a story because you're like, I know I am not resourced enough to drop this story. But on the other hand, dropping the first story is so fucking 
valuable because everybody will jump on it and you will be sourced by all these people. It gives you legitimacy as a journalist. It gives your publication legitimacy. It also means your story's probably gone hyper-viral and that means that you're hitting your numbers for the month, which means potentially a pay rise, like so many benefits, right? But I feel like working in journalism is kind of a constant juggling, especially because people don't really know how your job works. Like I get a lot of DMs from people being like, why didn't you cover this thing that happened yesterday? And it's like, girl, I work an 8.5 slash nine hour day and there are only so many things I can do in that nine hours. And I also need other time to sleep and eat and do the things that I do as a human being. Like I can't do all of that. And it's amazing how much we see that as a moral reflection on an individual. I used to get really snappy with people, to be honest, when because I just like, I would get really defensive because people would like, be quite nasty and like jump in my dms and be like why didn't you cover the bombing that happened in like peru i don't know making up countries and it'd be like because i just didn't get the chance and also i work for a publication that has like a very strict and limited perception of what is like the stuff that they publish and this is something that like the abc would publish probably not something that like buzzfeed sydney would publish you know what i mean like there's just people don't seem to understand that like i'm not an individual just writing whatever the hell I want. Like I work in an industry and I have like rules that I have to follow. And it's hard because people really like blame you. People view you as like an individual and they really blame you for like the mistakes of an industry and they blame you for the problems. In an industry, it can get really vile. Yeah, because I think people have this idea of journalists and, you know, it's a good perception, I guess, that they're arbiters of truth, that they hold a privileged place. Yeah, and place. I'm, like, flattered that, like, people view me that way at times. But it's important. it's not necessarily true because you're a worker like any other worker and you're integrated into a system of competing interests and just like every other workplace, you don't have complete control over the way you can do your job. But anyway, to kind of bring this back to PR and journalism, like, yeah, we're kind of workers. We have quotas to fill. We have stories to write and getting them in your inbox is pretty convenient. And sometimes they're like stories that I like think are useful and want to cover. Like a made up example that is probably a decent reflection of some PR releases I get is Mac is just giving away 1000 free burgers tomorrow. That's going to come to me in a press release with all the images and all the information. And sometimes they even write you puns, which is quite helpful. (laughs) But it's just like, yeah, I probably would report on that, even though like it's not like news, but because I know y'all are going to fucking froth at this. And I know that people are going to be like, oh my God, yes. And like, it's going to pop off and like, it's going to help me hit my numbers and I need to do that. And also, hypothetically, what if Mac has sponsored my company? Now I'm like, like, okay, if I write that, maybe we'll get some freebies and like also our audience will love it and it will get clicks. And also now we're in the good books with a sponsor and maybe we can negotiate some extra cash money, which will inherently become part of my paycheck. So like that is the logic that a lot of workers have. And I'm not necessarily saying it's my personal thoughts on the matter, but just like that is how people think. You are working for a company. I know we see journalists as like these really noble people that are fighting misinformation. The watchdogs of the government is actually how my degree framed it. Like when I did a journalism degree, it was like, you are the watchdog of, you know, it's the government and then it's you. (laughs) And it was like this really noble perspective. And journalism definitely can be like that. And there is scope for that. But in capitalism and in this like PR dominated world, not quite. (laughs) not quite because I don't have this power and defamation laws exist and also journalists are quite notoriously underpaid and high turnover rates and like most of the time you're just trying to do your job 
And often brands and PR are going to help you do that because this job is fucking hard. It's a lot of emotional labor all day, every day. And sometimes, yeah, it's easy and convenient to use a press release and you're going to use it. And I don't think that says anything about the writer that uses the press release. Okay, now that we've kind of given you a bit of a look into what it's like to actually be a worker in the journalism industry, that's what journalists are, let's kind of have a maybe deeper dive into like journalism now that we've got the context ready and like why, despite it being quite convenient for stressed workers, it's still actually something quite problematic and something we need to be critical of and something we should probably be worried about even. Exactly, because I think it can be extremely problematic. Because essentially, well, it is extremely problematic. Well, it, I is, say. it is extremely problematic. Yeah, for sure. Because there is a deeply reciprocal relationship between uh, media or news outlets, PR companies, uh, and capitalism. And I think you, as a worker, uh, there are a lot of conflicting interests in terms of wanting to report what you think is important and what is important and accurately. And you can't talk about certain things because you have to navigate a series of brand deals. But I also think. For readers, there's a conflict of interest because they want to get accurate news, yet the outlets in which they're getting news are like, you know, in bed with PR from every single company. And you know what? Also, like people want to get news, but they also want it to be funny, but they also want it to do this, but they also want it to do that. And it's like, no one's happy. Like, I just think there's a conflict of interest for sure about workers, but I also find it interesting with viewers who want true information, but also they want information that doesn't contradict them as well that that's also true they want information that's true to a point not uncomfortably true just true that's sort of funny yeah because there's a conflict of interest for readers uh because they want true news yet the place where they're getting news is you know uh dealing in this relationship with capitalism however their interests are also conflicting with each other they want all these different things at once yeah uh but i think it's important to note that we're not really talking about misinformation here. And I just, because I think it's important to say, because in recent years, especially, you know, in America since Trump, but and maybe in Australia since COVID, I feel, mm. there has been more and more uh, distrust in the media. There's no one to trust. Everyone's moving to these, you know, fringe Facebook groups and getting some- All their fucking wild anti-vaccine some, Yeah, they're, they're crazy stuff. But journalism isn't, misinformation it may be information that isn't particularly important or is being given to you because of commercial interests yeah it can be information that has an agenda yes but it's not necessarily false or lies and i also don't think it's a call to distrust journalists or to distrust these news outlets i think what we're trying to say here is that you guys should be aware and you should be thinking of this when you read stuff. But I think if you're aware of it, then you're able to navigate it. If you're aware yeah. of it, then you can decipher and think about it critically. But we're not talking about, you know, false information. Yeah, we're not saying around. don't trust the journalists. They wrote that from a Macca's PR press yes, release. Because That's not what already, we're saying. There's already enough people saying that you can't trust yes. the writers. Out. And as a journalist, please trust at least some of us. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, no, there's a deeply reciprocal relationship between all these elements, all these conflicts of interest. And the fact is, most of the stories you read, or at least a large deal of them, are lifted directly from PR packages. And those are sent by companies who are ultimately either trying to create a good impression of themselves or trying to sell something. And of course, as a writer, and as we've mentioned, there are many reasons why you'd want to write those stories. Firstly, as we mentioned before, you have to publish a certain amount of articles every single day. So if an article is being handed to you on a silver platter, likely you're going to take it. Uh, And secondly, if you don't report it, someone else will. 
So that means that if you're not reporting on a PR packet that was sent to every outlet, you're going to get left behind. And you may actually have to just end up reporting on it anyways because it's become such a big deal. But another problematic thing is the fact that if you see through it or if you see that something negative is going on and you report on that uh, and you report on this PR packet that you got, but in a negative light, you may no longer get sent these packages, which are actually incredibly instrumental for journalists because these are where you get your sources from a lot of the time. That's the nature of journalism. Yeah, you need to be networked in journalism. You need to be able to have sources, especially like, you know, say you want to write an article and like why people are really depressed during COVID. Like, okay, then you need to have a source from like a psychologist and you need to like have all these connections. And you can't just call up a random psychologist clinic and be like, talk to me. There are like media connections that you kind of need to have. And you get those through PR packages because I guarantee you in your inbox, if you search psychologist, you're going to find one in there. Like, that's how we find a lot of sources because these people want to be interviewed and they want to talk and, like, it can be useful that way and you kind of need them. So, like, I can see why that exists. Because a reality for a lot of journalists is getting blacklisted from these lists, getting no longer sent the, the sources that they need to keep up with every other journalist out there. That's just a reality. So, without this reciprocal relationship, you fail. Now that we've talked about kind of the pros and cons from like a worker perspective of journalism, like let's talk about what that means for you as readers and what that means for kind of the wider consumer base. Because I think, and as somebody who benefits from journalism in my job, I think it's dangerous because when all of this information is coming to you filtered through a brand, it's not going to be critical of the powers that it should be critical of. And it is up to journalists in that point to be critical, but we're not always in a position where we can do that without, you know, sacrificing our jobs. And that's the problem. I guess journalism just shows the complete flaw in the funding model of actual journalism. Because if it's brands that pay for your news, then they're the ones who are going to have a say in what news gets published and what stories get out and what information is spread. And it's just never good to, like, have all your content be sponsored by brands. It's why Mitch and I's little podcast is not sponsored by any brands. Like it's a complicated position to be in when you're in the media or when you're a journalist or when your job is to talk about the news. It's icky to have brands in your pocket because it just really limits your control and it limits the truth that you can tell. And it's why we're independent. And honestly, it's why we'll always remain a pretty small podcast We're not going to ever get to the size of some of those other podcasts without some kind of ads, but we're never going to do those ads. And that's the sinister thing about journalism is the way that it grants brands and corporations so much power. But that's capitalism. It it gives them direct access to the media, pretty much. The media become, you become a vessel for brands messaging. Yes, exactly. And that's not to say that we don't report real news because we do. And sometimes... Like we report really fucking important news and we're the first to break it and real journalism exists and is happening every day. But in between that, there's all this filler branded content and that exists because it has to. Like we have to do that to make the brand gods happy. One thing I really wanted to bring up concerning journalism is something we actually talked about way back on the podcast and in our episode about capitalist dystopia and and wholesome news where we talked about this idea of the propaganda model. Uh, So definitely listen to that if this is interesting to you and you want more in depth. But I'll just uh, summarize what I think is most important to this topic right now, which essentially the propaganda model suggests that there is five filters, five capitalistic political 
interests that shape and mold what sort of news gets published and what sort of news can be published. And the two that I think are most relevant to this discussion are that of advertising and sourcing. So advertising is pretty straightforward and we sort of alluded to it earlier, which is essentially that we have these competing interests with writers and advertisers and you can only write things that will not piss off your advertisers essentially. Basically, they're a filter. They mold uh, what can and cannot be said. The second one, which is also relevant, is sourcing. The propaganda model describes how sourcing is a really significant factor into what news gets published. And what that entails is no news publication or journalist can be everywhere at once. So what happens is they focus around centers of knowledge, centers where events happen. And so it's almost like news coalesces around places where news is likely to happen. So back when the propaganda model was being described, it was there'd always be journalists around like the White House or, or Parliament because that's where news typically happens. In modern media, it seems that this sourcing and this reciprocal relationship has sort of changed where we now have reciprocal relationships with PR packages. We no longer coalesce around uh, the White House, but we coalesce around our inbox. Yeah, we, we no longer need to be at these places because instead of finding the information, we can rely on somebody giving it to us. Exactly. So when we have an hour left in our shift and we need to write, I'm saying we like I write, I don't do this. But (laughs) when one has to write an article very quickly and they don't have anything to write about, well, I'll have a look in my email and see what pre-written story I can just rearrange and everyone's happy. And I think this is really interesting because it exactly details how capitalism and these competing interests uh, and capitalism's grip on media institutions have really shaped and encouraged journalism. Journalism isn't the downfall of, of media, but it's exactly the way capitalism wants it. Yeah, like journalism on its own could exist as like a benign factor in journalism. It's where a lot of your lifestyle and food pieces come from, and it doesn't necessarily like have to be something we really give a shit about or talk about. But the reason we're talking about it is because capitalism has allowed journalism to grow and morph into this like massive, huge blight on journalism. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of, it could have been a handy thing to have on a slow news day or when you like need to get something out quickly. But now because news is no longer independent and it is necessary that we have brands and sponsors, it's become icky. There's become these conflicts of interest. Exactly. And I think you're exactly right. Maybe back in the day, journalism, this repurposing of information would be what you do on a slow news day. Yeah. And it would have actually been pretty fucking handy. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Because people are interested in this sort of stuff. Yeah. People still want to know if Maccas is doing a thousand free burgers. But now it's not something you do on a slow news day, but it's the default. Now the actual hard hitting news is the outlier. The hard hitting news is what you do when something truly like momentous is happening. And the rest of the time is the journalism, is the, the repurposing of other media or of PR packages sent to you. Yeah, well, it essentially becomes like investigative journalism becomes the exception and not the rule. And that most people working in a full-time job in journalism, like unless their role is literally being an investigative journalist or unless they work for somebody like the ABC or The Guardian, if you're working for any other kind of fast-paced publication, newsroom situation, you're probably doing a lot of journalism. And that's just the reality of the industry. And that's concerning because we don't want it to be the reality of the industry. But unfortunately, that's where everything is going under capitalism. Like 
it's impossible to have objective news under capitalism. And the sort of second thing I wanted to mention about how this relates to modern capitalism is that, in a way, the logic of journalism isn't exclusive to journalism or to writers. I think it actually says a lot about what a lot of workers are doing under capitalism in this contemporary moment. And something when I was researching this that really stuck out to me was a book I read recently by Mackenzie Walk called Capital is Dead. And she posits, you know, this really complicated, sophisticated argument. I won't get into all that here. But she's essentially saying that capitalism as we know it no longer exists. Capitalism as the bourgeoisie who owns the means of production and the proletariat who then works for the bourgeoisie. That relationship maybe isn't the best way to describe contemporary capitalism. And Walk instead posits that we have a new relationship, that of the hacker class and of new ruling class, which is uh, controls vectors. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain Yeah, look, that I know that second. sounds fucking whack, but I know. Mitch is going to explain. Where old work or work, you know, back in capitalism as we conventionally understand back it. Back in the day. Back in the day was often about physical labor, like doing something physical. And it was about sameness in a way. Yeah, think of like the 50s with the dad going to his office job every day at nine and coming home at five. Think that's the same thing. He you the same numbers every day in his little cubicle. Yeah. And then in a more simplistic understanding, like the factory worker who is building the same commodity, uh, doing the same role over and over again. Like the Fordist line where everyone's, you know, putting on the same door on the same part of the car and it moves. Next yeah, on the, the conveyor belt. Like it's just you come in, you do this exact same thing every single day and then you go home. It seems, and I think Walk is right to point this out, that contemporary capitalism isn't so much about this. In what we call post-Fordist capitalism, there is a fundamental change in the type of work we're doing. We're no longer doing work that is ultimately repetitive and not really physical anymore, but we're doing work which is defined by doing something different every single day. And I'll get into what she means. Yeah, it's about the fact that like now work is all about uniqueness. And not necessarily about like just doing the same thing every day. In fact, that is like what we don't want to do. Yeah. So instead of the proletariat class, we have the hacker class, which is defined by making newness and of sameness. And I'll just read a quote from her book, which again, I would really recommend to anyone who thinks this sounds interesting. Which I hope some of you do because we're talking about it. (laughs) I hope so. Walk says, one thing that is distinctive about an information political economy is the way it instrumentalizes difference rather than sameness. The farmer and the worker produce units of commodities that are equivalent with their kind. What I call the hack class has to produce difference and of sameness. It has to make information that has enough novelty to be recognizable as intellectual property, a problem that landed property or commercial property does not have. By hacker class, I mean everyone who produces new information and of old information, and not just people who code for a living. Part of the struggle of our time is to see a common class interest in all kinds of information making, whether in the sciences, technology, media, culture, or art. What we all have in common is producing. And I think that just perfectly surmises the job that a contemporary journalist has. You are essentially, because you're not doing firsthand journalism or investigative journalism, you're ultimately curating. You're taking pieces from other articles or from PR packets and then making a Frankenstein monster of a new information that, to be honest, someone else is going to see that article and at copy. another job and then copy. Yes. Actually, a little side note that has like totally happened to me at times where like, you know, for example, my article on tanning that I wrote ages ago, it's on my Instagram for those of you interested, where I wrote an article on like why I think tanning is kind of problematic and reinforces racist ideas. 
And like that is like, I didn't go and like do some investigative journalism. Like that's just an opinion that I have. And I wrote an opinion and part of writing that opinion and writing that article was linking to a bunch of other articles that kind of reinforced some of the points that I brought up. And then I guarantee you somebody else is going to write an article and they're going to link back to my article, which links back to 10 other articles. Like it's all curation. Yeah. And just think of jobs outside of journalism that operate in the exact same way where your job is to take old information and make new information. I think that just describes so many office jobs nowadays. And it definitely describes the the people who are on the other side of this, the PR people who have to write these things, who are essentially acting as like surrogate journalists. You yeah, know? totally. And I think, yeah, it's really interesting because that is absolutely what journalism is these days. It is taking a bunch of information that already exists but then turning it into an angle that is unique to your publication so you can ensure those clicks. And honestly, isn't that what we just do? Like any kind of person who's on like social media, like I think a really good example of that is when somebody puts up like a cute little Canva made graphic that says like practice self-care and there's like hearts on it. Like that is not like an original quote of this, but they've like taken that information and turned it into a pretty graphic, which should turn it into new information, which they've then shared on their nice grid on Instagram. Like you are doing it every day. And I think what this kind of shows us is that like journalism, it doesn't say anything about the skill of the writers. It's not like a bad writer is doing journalism. It's that journalism is just a part of being a journalist. And often writers have absolutely no control over what they write or like they don't have control over what stories like must and mustn't be published. And they need to make a living and they're going to cover things and journalism is going to be a part of that. But something that I find that we kind of really need to remember is that writers are still workers, which I think was explained pretty well in the theory that Mitch just dropped. But like writers are workers and they are telling these stories and they are performing a labor. Actually, the fact that they are workers is exactly what allows them to write new stories that are relevant and are important because if they just represented the interests of the company, nothing interesting or radical or really important would get published most of the time. But the fact that they are workers with political interests, whether consciously or even subconsciously, that's what allows them to write things which may not be in the best interests of whatever media organization. Being a worker under capitalism means that you exist in a tension and struggle against your employer. But it's this tension in which the contradictions can emerge and you can actually contradict almost your position as being a puppet, for example, for a media institution, but can actually write radical stuff. Yeah, it's that tension that allows you to do great things as a journalist, I think. It's that tension and navigating that tension that lets you write good articles, meaningful articles. Because if it wasn't for that tension and if you didn't have opposing kind of conflicts of interest, then you'd be writing 10,000 free Maccas yarns a day. I mean, to me, it's the same reason that Hollywood, for example, while being a, a multi-billion dollar industry within capitalism, can sometimes you have directors that make films that may criticize capitalism despite being highly integrated into that system. I think it's that same tension, that same contradiction and that same struggle that allows these radical stories to unfold. Yeah, because like... You have to exist in that system either way. So you're going to try and get like what little bits of criticism you can through the cracks. I think that's so true. And it really reminds me of a Noam Chomsky quote from a 1996 interview on the BBC talking about the media and these conflicting interests. And he says, some of the best and best known investigative journalists in the United States whose attitude towards the media is far more cynical than mine. In fact, they regard the media as a sham. And they know and they consciously talk about how they try to play it like a violin. 
If they see a little opening, they'll try and squeeze something in that wouldn't ordinarily make it through. Exactly. And I think that is my inspiration in journalism. Like it's hard to exist in an industry where people either see you as a corporate media hack or they see you as some like misinformation spreader or like, I don't know, there's just a lot of distrust in the media. And like, I don't necessarily blame people for feeling that distrust because like a lot of the media is, you know, really controlled by brands. But I feel like that quote from Noam Chomsky, because I heard that not that long ago, and it really kind of made me feel a little bit better because that's what I do. Like I am working in a job where I constantly have to navigate a conflict of interest between me and brands and I do the best I can. And sometimes I have to write shitty brand articles that are necessary to keep my job. But my entire career is about trying to find moments where I can get something radical out there. And my entire goal as like an anti-capitalist journalist navigating this industry is that like, yeah, okay, I'll do the shit articles when I have to. So that when I get the chance to do something genuinely radical, for, to squeeze in like a little nugget of my real beliefs, I take it. And that's, I think, what makes a good journalist. And that's what I try to aspire to do. Like that's my, that's my goal is to be the kind of journalist that understands how to play the field and is able to actually get some good shit out there when the opportunity presents itself and when I actually get the chance. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode. I know we said before we didn't have sponsors, but it was a lie. Because it's you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Johnny, Sarah Calcagno, Liz, Bell, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha or at our PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Because you know us, we're anti-capitalists. We want to stay independent. We will never have ads. And you guys are how we, I guess, keep this podcast afloat. Love you very much. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and we'll drop them in the description below as well as usual. And follow my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me on Instagram again at Official or email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com. And if you do email us, please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. But yeah, I guess that's all for today, guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Cool. Bye. Bye.